Well, hello, everyone. I am here today uh, with a honored guest, uh, and I'll tell you a little bit about uh, Amy uh, before we begin. But my name is William Ajay, and um, I'm here with Amy Sherman. Uh, Amy is a leader, a trainer, an author, a speaker, a writer, a thinker. Um, she currently directs the Sagamore Institute's Center of Faith in Communities. And what they do is really train and consult with faith-based social service providers and also religious congregations who desire to invest more in effectively reaching uh, their neighborhoods and serving their neighborhoods. She partners very closely with a number of organizations, one of which is one called Made to Flourish. And Made to Flourish is a network that empowers pastors and Christian leaders in their ministry. Um, she partners with them specifically by contributing a lot of her writing and her thinking and speaking. And uh, Amy is also a prolific author. So she's authored several books, uh, over seven books and hundreds of articles and essays on a wide range of topics, again, in the area of uh, service and community and kingdom calling and ministry. One of her books was uh, an honoree in 2013 for Christianity Today's Choice as Book of the Year. And that book was called Kingdom Calling, Vocational Stewardship for the Common Good. Um, she's also helped publish a number of guides, the Charitable Choice Handbook for Ministry Leaders, the ABCs of Community Ministry, which is a curriculum for congregations, and then establishing a church-based welfare-to-work mentoring ministry, a practical how-to guide. We're here today to discuss her latest book published earlier this year. Um, I'll let, you tell, let her tell you all about it. It's called Agents of Flourishing. And this is a book that uh, we're here to just discuss and learn a little bit more about a, a framework is maybe a way to describe that Amy really uh, articulated in the book, really again to help guide ministry leaders and also individuals in living uh, their fullest when it comes to realizing what God has um, brought them to in the area of ministry. And again, I, I don't want to uh, take away too much from her uh, description of it. So we'll dive into it. So Amy, welcome. And we're so glad to have you and very much looking forward to the, the conversation today. Well, thank you, William. I appreciate your interest in my work and in this new book. All right. Well, uh, just to get us started, I uh, wanted to start with the, the book again, if you could tell us the title and just a very high level about your intended audience for that book, why you wrote it. Um, and the reason I ask is I know that it actually fits within a broader, uh, I would say, effort or initiative that you've been working on that actually has a number of contributors and a number of pieces that you were uh, sort of working towards. So I'd love to hear a little bit about, again, the, the impetus behind the book and the intended audience. Sure. So the full title of the book is Agents of Flourishing, uh, Pursuing Shalom in Every Corner of Society. And the primary audience really uh, is church leaders. Um, the stories in the books in the book are stories about churches and the ways that they are contributing to the flourishing of their of their communities. Um, but it's certainly a book that um, you know, lay people in the pews um, can read as well and be hopefully inspired by and uh, instructed by. Um, the, 
the motivations for working on the book, I think, were a, a few different things. Um, uh, one very practical one was that I've been encouraged by the number of pastors and congregational leaders that I have met over the past decade or so who essentially say something like this to me. Um, our congregation wants to live into uh, the call of Jeremiah 29.7, to seek the peace and the prosperity of our city. Um, we take that seriously. We, we want to do that. Um, but honestly, candidly, <laughs> we're, we're not quite sure exactly what that looks like or how to do that. Um, so, so that was a, that was a primary driver, uh, I, I would say. Um, but also I, I think that part of my motivation was, uh, my awareness from non-Christian family members, uh, non-Christian friends, uh, this, this awareness of great skepticism about the value of the church, mm. uh, some hostility, frankly, uh, towards the, towards the Christian, uh, community, uh, and sort of this, uh, this, this, uh, assessment that, um, you know, churches sort of do more harm than good. Um, and, you know, I think we have to be honest about our failings and we have to be honest about the ways that uh, that the Christian church has um, harmed folks. And, you know, we've got, we've got some, <laughs> we've got some problems, you know, in our, in our own camp that need, uh, you know, that need addressing. Um, but the, you know, the bar, the broader, larger story of Christ's bride on this planet, mm. um, you know, as, has, has been a, a story of, uh, of, God empowering his people to love and to serve and, and to bring contributions. And so um, as honest as I want to be about the failings of the church, and there are many in the past and in the present, um, I also felt a certain sense of motivation to, for, for these folks to, to, to realize, hey, the church is doing a lot of good as well. And probably just don't hear about that very much. Yeah. Yeah, certainly uh, a, a lot in there, Amy. And um, I do agree with you. We live in a day and a time when, um, particularly in the West, but certainly not by any less of a measure, other parts of the world also, uh, there, there are not too many very receptive uh, perceptions about the church and its role and what it's there for. And very easy to point to the failings as one, one of the reasons for that. I did want to push a little bit on the um, nuance of, you know, in thinking about the different churches that you talk about in the book. Um, to what extent are many of the, the topics and ideas that you're talking about, are they necessarily Western in nature? Or have you touched on, you know, other parts of the world and what are some of the differences in those perceptions as you sort of looked at the different types of churches? Yeah, well, you know, the book really is, uh, it is a North American book. Um, it is a book about, you know, churches here. At one point, um, a few years back, early on in the in the project, I had 
thought a little bit about. I wonder if I could include some stories from uh, from some some other churches. Um, but already the already the book was broad and and big and. Uh, ultimately, three years later, I still had to uh, cut about, I don't know, 40% of it down uh, after I had sent the manuscript uh, in. Um, but I mean, I certainly think that, that, that we have a lot to learn mm. <laughs> from, from other churches um, in, in the majority world in particular. Um, and in fact, Kingdom Calling uh, highlighted a, a church from, uh, from Kenya um, that I think has a great deal that I actually got to go over to Nairobi and spend time with them. And that was really special. Um, but it is a book about, uh, about, about these churches, but in that, but the, the larger message of the book, uh, really is universal mm. because, um, the, the title agents of flourishing is meant to remind us, uh, of a couple really important things. One is that um, God is for flourishing. God um, made a world of shalom. And I really sort of use the words flourishing and shalom somewhat interchangeably, uh, you know, in the book. Um, and, uh, and secondly, there's this huge theme throughout the scriptures um, about God's desire that his people seek the flourishing of the other, that, that a huge way that we honor God and, and worship God and demonstrate um, the character of God and the goodness of God mm. and the love of God is by sacrificially seeking the good or the flourishing uh, of, of others. Um, and so in that sense, um, in that sense, though the particular stories are about North American churches and what they're doing, in that sense, it's a it's a more limited, uh, you know, book. On the other hand, um, it's a book that reminds all Christ followers of a central part of our identity and mission, which is that we are, in fact, agents of flourishing, and we are called to be agents of flourishing, all of us, anywhere on the planet. Yeah, very, very well said and, and very true. When I think about flourishing, a couple of things come to mind. Uh, there is flourishing in, in the spiritual sense, um, truly growing to know God, love God, enjoy him forever. Uh, there's Matthew 28, uh, making disciples, teaching them uh, to obey everything I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you to the end of the age but a big theme also is the good of the city and you actually start there you talk about uh jeremiah 29 7 as a starting point can you expand on the idea of being there for the good of the city uh, as a foundational concept uh for the book yeah yeah so um so for me jeremiah 29 7 it is like the tip of, a, of an iceberg and, and the iceberg below uh, is, is this whole theology that I referenced earlier, uh, this theology that God's people are blessed to be a blessing, this theology that God desires that his people um, act for the good of their neighbors. Um, that is a very practical way that we demonstrate a holy life 
and that we demonstrate that the God whom we serve uh, is a God of love and a God of justice and a God of goodness, a God of peace. Um, so, um, so this call to, to seek the good of the city, the good of the community where, where you're at um, is, is, I think, a, a very prominent theme uh, throughout the scriptures. Um, certainly the theme of love your neighbor is, is everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, but then also, I think what, what we get uh, in Jeremiah 29, 7 is, is a little bit of a glimpse into a theology of place. Um, so it's not just sort of generically love all your people, love your neighbors, um, but, but God's interest in places, God's interest in specific communities uh, and our call to be uh, his outposts, his ambassadors. Uh, in specific uh, places, mm. uh, so I think what what you have what you have in this theme, uh, this biblical theme of seek the good of the city, you have sort of a combination of um, God's heart for places uh, and, and God's desire to see His people um, being shalom bringers uh, to their neighbors. Yeah, very, very well said. And, and um, to extend even further on the good of the city, uh, how does a Christian leader or a church wrestle with addressing very practical social needs without compromising the primacy of the gospel message and the spiritual eternal health of uh, the community and the specific individuals to whom that ministry is really focused on? Yeah, well, I think um, part of the answer to that question is the importance of, of having a biblical definition of flourishing. Mm -hmm. So I actually have a chapter on that on the front end of the book, because this word flourishing gets thrown around a lot, Yes, including yes. in, in non-Christian uh, circles, right? Um, and so it's really important that we... Um, see clearly, you know, well, what, it, what is a biblical understanding of flourishing? Uh, because it's really quite different in many ways from a secular uh, view of that. There are some overlaps, um, be, you know, essentially because of common grace, right? Pretty much all people would say, we love justice, we want peace, <laughs> we, we want beauty, um, right? So in that sense, there are, you know, uh, ways in which what I think of as flourishing is, is not that different than what my non-Christian neighbor might mm. this flourishing. But at the same time, there are also some really sharp differences. And I think at the heart of the biblical notion of flourishing uh, is that it's relational flourishing. Mm. Uh, it's flourishing that is aligned with how God made us. And God made us for relationship. Mm. The primary relationship for whom he made us is himself. So at the very heart of biblical flourishing is this notion of the, the relationship um, as a beloved of God, right? So we don't have true flourishing apart from a vibrant, intimate, um, loving uh, experience of our father and, and creator. 
Um, so, so any attempt to work for the flourishing of others is going to have in mind the desire to seek their spiritual flourishing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so I, again, I had mentioned that I sort of use the, the word shalom and flourishing somewhat interchangeably in the book. And, and I think a, a helpful kind of handy um, shorthand way of understanding shalom is the idea of peace with God, peace with self, peace with others, mm -hmm. and peace with the created order. So seeking the flourishing of others is going to be seeking that holistic health in all of those different, um, in all those different dimensions. And so um, this is not to say that in every particular expression of ministry in the community, um, all four of those things are always at every moment mm. exactly equally balanced right? Um, there's a mixture there. Um, but essentially seeking the flourishing of the city, seeking the flourishing of our neighbors um, is, is in a sense by definition uh, going to include a concern that those who do not yet know their heavenly father will come to know <laughs> their heavenly father yeah. and you know, have that relationship with him. Thank you for that. And it's a very helpful, or I should say clarifying definition, because um, I would say the one of one of the frameworks for flourishing that come to mind without that biblical context is, and you hear this a lot, achieving your fullest potential. And you know, it's it's sort of the idea of be the best version that you can be. But the best version that we can be is who God made us to be. And so connecting that to that. Um, yeah, dwelling in yeah his that's, that's exactly right, William. And, you know, the the biblical view of flourishing is so much more about community, mm. right? The secular view of flourishing is essentially, you know, me and my sort of individual expressions and finding myself and, you know, my own happiness, uh, Whereas in the biblical framework, you have this incredible notion that we belong to one another, uh, that there's a way in which my flourishing is actually um, tied up in your flourishing, and that that um, I really can't be completely flourishing if you're not flourishing. Yes, yeah. so I'm connected to you in a in a really important way, and, and and even I think that one of the strangest things as I was sort of studying this idea of well, what does the Bible really teach us about flourishing? One of, one of the mysterious things, I think, is that, you know, in the secular mind, there's no way in which flourishing and pain could, like, go together. Mm. Or flourishing and suffering, or yeah. flourishing and sacrifice. Like, that, that would be, it would be like a contrast, right? Whereas, actually, in the scriptures, you have this notion of flourishing that, that may in fact involve some suffering. So you have like the vision in, in, the, in the wisdom literature of the, the righteous person being this, this evergreen tree um, that is there and it's alive and it's vibrant, but it says, you know, even, you know, even in drought, you know, even in the hard times, you yeah. know, even, uh, 
Um, so you get this sense of, oh, biblical flourishing means, well, your circumstances might actually be quite difficult, but you're actually flourishing nevertheless because of the sustaining grace of, of God. Um, and, you know, I may not feel like I'm flourishing when I'm laying down my life for you. Mm. That may be hard, right? That's taking the cross. Um, that's picking up the bowl and the, and the basin and the towel. Um, and at that moment, that, that, that act of sacrificially serving you may not feel like I'm really flourishing. But Jesus tells us that is actually life. That's the way to life. That, that act of laying down your life is actually the place where you find your life. So this, this idea of biblical flourishing uh, at, at, in, that, in that sense, I think, is quite a conundrum to, to those outside of the kingdom because uh, they just don't understand how flourishing and sacrifice flourishing and service flourishing and suffering could somehow go together. But in the mystery of Christ, they do. Indeed, and it, it, uh, I think one of the ways in which I felt you highlighted that very well in the book was how you discussed the idea of exile. Mm. We are in the world, but not of. And so being in the world necessarily comes with many things that, you know, we would consider, you know, adversity or um, we, would, we would put in the category of suffering. And yet uh, being in, but not of, is actually very much part and parcel of what we're, we're called to do. But what I'd like to maybe even make that even more clear is um, to hear a little bit from you about the context or the stories of some of these churches. There were a number of them that you um, highlighted. Um, can, can you, are, which ones come to mind most prominently when you think about in but not of and really balancing that, that tension? Um, are there a couple that maybe would be great to highlight? Yeah, yeah. It's it's a bit of an unfair question. It's like asking me, you know, which of which of your children are your favorite children? They're all they're all good stories, and I I loved loved all of them. But um, I guess off the cuff, when I think specifically of sort of the in and of type question, um, I think uh, I think maybe that the two stories I tell specifically. Um, so, so the book is organized by this idea of seeking these six, seeking good in six different realms, the good, the true, yeah. the beautiful, the just, the prosperous, and the sustainable. And I tell two, so I tell stories of two different churches uh, under the, the, the section on the just. Um, and uh, I think they're, they're good examples of, of this um, in and not of. So the one is a relatively small church it's a multi-ethnic church uh, in Richmond, Virginia, not too terribly far from where I live, about an hour away. And it's called East End Fellowship. And essentially what I highlight in talking about that church uh, is that they are contributing, I think, to, um, to, the, this, to the realm of the just and well-ordered um, because they are living and demonstrating um, the, the whole biblical notion of reconciliation, uh, the, the notion of living uh, unity in diversity. Mm -hmm. um, 
they have thought a great deal about reconciliation across uh, class and racial divides. And they have tried very hard to create a community um, that is that glorious um, heterogeneous community uh, every, every tongue and tribe and nation. Every tongue, every tongue and tribe and, and nation. And so, so here's a practice that they engage in um, that is uh, definitely uh, not of this world. Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, they follow something they call the 75% rule. What they mean by that is that here they have this fellowship Many different uh, folks are there, black people, white people, Hispanic people, Asian people, old people, young people, wealthier people, um, people on government assistance. It's, it's really quite a, quite a hodgepodge. And they organize their services in such a way that they're actually trying to make sure that nobody's sitting there is completely happy, satisfied, and comfortable uh, more than 75% of the time. Uh, the idea is if, if you are always there and you're happy completely about 100% of the time, then that would probably indicate that your particular cultural, personal preferences are being honored by mm. the way that this service is happening. If you love every musical song, if you love every piece of the liturgy, if you love everything there is about it, probably some of that is that, uh, you know, <laughs> it's a little bit too much like you. Mm. Um, so that's pretty, uh, that's pretty interesting, I think. Um, and, and, you know, that's certainly different than the, than the ways of the, the world where, where we would choose to belong to a group where we say, I'm going to lay down some of my personal preferences. I'm going right. to lay down some of my cultural preferences in order for others who are different from me to have their needs met, to have their desires uh, met. Um, so I, I think that's a, I think that's a good example. I think another, yeah, that's a great one. Yeah. Another way that that church, it strikes me is sort of um, in, but not of, um, they, they take very seriously questions of racial justice and they, uh, they provide education that helps people understand the, the racial history of, of the United States. Um, they attend to the realities of, you know, what is actually going on in our society in terms of difficulties within in, and injustices within the criminal justice system um, you know, whatever the issues are. Um, at the same time, um, while they're not afraid to talk about those things, highlight those things, educate people about those things, engage in advocacy, partner with other groups, um, they also um, are less interested in sort of mobilizing protest. Mm. Yeah, not, not that there's not a role for appropriate protests. I want to be really careful right. how I depict what they're, what they're doing. 
So it's not that they say, but I guess what I want to say is they're, they're, they're much more interested in sort of getting beyond the protesting um, to, to some really creative ways of, of how different groups can, can make culture together mm. and how we can live into um, reconciliation by, 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 by working together, building together. Um, and they even define racial reconciliation as a, as a spiritual formation uh, process. Okay. Um, not just a sociological process. So, so I, in those various ways, I think they, they are, they are in the world, very attentive, very aware of what's going on, lamenting actively the injustices that exist, um, and yet responding to those things in some ways that are distinctively biblical. Yeah, yeah, I mean, those are really powerful examples and almost gives you a, a note of encouragement in the type of uh, environment we live in today. Um, and we could probably spend an hour, you know, wrestling with, you know, the state of our democracy, the state of our country. And this seems to be at least one, one helpful answer that brings peace, brings shalom, right? By, by bringing community together across all these lines. Um, I think you had one more uh, example that you're going to share. Um, love to, love yeah, to hear. So, so another church in that same section of the book uh, is a church in the Midwest. It's called Church of the Servant, and it's a Christian Reformed church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Mm. And I wrote about them uh, because I was very taken by their long, faithful um, commitment over the past, really, probably 25 years or more, uh, to restorative justice. So this is a church that um, cares very deeply about the criminal justice system, um, is ministering to prisoners uh, in a variety of very practical ways. Everything from uh, this church really um, helped uh, in all kinds of ways stand up um, the first church behind bars. Mm. In, in, in Michigan, they played a really important role uh, in, in the standing up of a wonderful church that's called Celebration Fellowship, which meets um, in one of the prisons uh, in, in Michigan. Um, they, they are very involved in aftercare. So as prisoners are released, um, they, the church um, has partnerships with different ministries that are helping folks to uh, reintegrate, helping them with transportation and jobs and housing uh, and, and, and the like. It's a church that's involved in education. Uh, they do a lot. It's, it's a church that's in the same, uh, you know, place as Calvin College. And Calvin College is a wonderful uh, a school of uh, folks that take the life of the mind very seriously, uh, just like you do at Wheaton College and just like my alma mater, uh, Messiah College uh, yeah. does. Got to give a shout out to Messiah. Um, so they, you know, they've done incredible education uh, initiatives and bringing in, you know, speakers who come and talk about 
uh, justice and, and, and the like. They're involved in advocacy. Um, you know, they're trying to address uh, inequities in the, in the criminal justice system. Um, so in, in all of those ways, they're very present in the midst of the realities um, of, of the criminal justice system. Uh, yet they're not of this world. Um, I think in a, in a couple important in a couple important ways. Um, one of the things that they I think really do well is honor the humanity mm. of people behind bars. And there's a lot in our society that's sort of a you know lock them up and throw yeah. away the key. And they're all a bunch of monsters, right? There's a there's a dehumanization. Uh, certainly not everyone you know, in our society, but but that is that's a that's a reality that there are attitudes like that uh, in our cultural waters, right? And so for this, these folks to sort of stand up and honor the inherent human dignity, even of people who have done very very bad things. Uh, is a way of not being, you know, uh, of the world. And then maybe related to that, uh, what I would say is that the we have a criminal justice system in our country that essentially is retributive. So it's very interested in punishing offenders. Um, it, it's concerned about the offense that has been done to the law and to the state. Um, and it's a, it's a system where we, I think, pay some lip service to the idea of rehabilitation. Um, but if we really look at our practices, um, with some exceptions, but, but not a lot, um, I, I don't think we see a lot of money a lot of effort really, really going going into that. Well, into that context, this is a church that that lifts up the biblical idea of restorative justice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That there's a different paradigm that we could be following as we try to interact with those who have been harmed and those who have harmed, um, and they try to make that. Uh, make that paradigm very practical and concrete by suggesting very specific types of reforms that could be made in law and procedure to, to move elements of the criminal justice system from that strictly retributive sort of mindset to more of a restorative mindset that, that takes very seriously the harm done to the victim but also works for the for the restoration of the offender. So in that way, I think this is a church that also represents that in but not of. I really love that. I, I think it goes back to, again, the beginning in the heart of God being relational um, among himself and bringing us into that relationship. And when you have a relationship, you're more interested in uh, reforming and renewing and resourcing rather than uh, being punitive and um, retributive. So very, very well articulated. 
Uh, there are a couple of other things that stood out for me in the book. I really love also the framework that you talked about in terms of where churches uh, and how they approach and how they think about ministry. Though there's there's the institutional model, there's the organic and the partner uh, partnership focused. Could you talk a little bit about that? And then um, I'd like to sort of take us to the rest of the six part framework to sort of you know kind of finish out with that. But I'd love maybe to kind of set some of the context with the approaches to ministry that you outlined. Yeah, yeah. So I've I've spent a lot of uh, my life trying to come alongside of of uh, congregations as they've thought about how to be involved in in ministry in their communities. And you know, there's many different expressions of that, but I I think that a lot of different strategies kind of more or less fall into three kind of big buckets. Uh, I'm sure there's other buckets out there, but I've certainly seen uh, things in these three big buckets. Mm-hmm. And the first sort of bucket is what I have labeled organic uh, ministry. So the idea here is that uh, the church leaders say, we feel like what, what, what God would have us do is respond to the dreams and the passions and the burdens that, that he is laying on the hearts of the, of the people in the flock. So as people in the flock sort of rise up and say, I really think the Lord would want our church to be more involved with the schools. Um, we've, we've got to love kids. We, there are the, you know, they're the next generation. Or somebody else stands up and says, um, the Lord has really called me to start a, a prison ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, and and here's, here's why I would say that. And, uh, and so the church leaders are sort of saying, our outreach ministries are really going to flow out of what is organically bubbling up uh, from, from the congregants and what God is doing in their lives. The institutional approach uh, is is different. Um, it it, uh, it sort of says um, we believe that um, the Lord is going as the church leaders seek the face of God for the vision that He has for this for this church. Um, that that God is going to sort of show us uh, as leaders um, what has He put in our hands. Uh, and what is our context? Um, what's going on in, in the place where he has, has planted us? And that he will bring to our attention um, those priorities um, that, that we ought to attend to. Uh, and so they kind of um, cast vision and say, we think the Lord is really calling us towards creation care ministry or we, we've, you know, the elders have been on retreat and we've done this and that and the other, and we've been, you know, reading these books and studying and listening. And, and our sense is that um, we've got a lot of healthcare professionals here. Uh, and we really think that one of the most strategic ways we could positively affect our community would be to, um, you know, really move in the, in the healthcare space. And, uh, and uh, so it's, a, it's more of a top down um, kind of kind of approach, and then the third approach, um, and and really actually uh, none of these is is um, 
uh, exclusive to the other. They're, right. not, they're not mutually exclusive. In fact, a lot of churches have a mixture. Um, but generally, I see you know churches being more of one sort or, or another. The third bucket is what I call partnership ministry, and as the name suggests, the you know the idea there is you know the church is essentially saying, okay, here we are. We're part of a larger ecosystem of other churches and other ministries and and uh, you know nonprofit organizations that are here. Um, let's let's spend some time listening. Uh, to the folks that are in our community um, and finding out what they're already doing uh, and then asking the Lord to show us, you know, with whom might we partner? Where could we, given our unique assets, uh, where could we add value to what's already going on? Uh, and, and so, you know, the church is sort of like, we don't really want to start anything of our own. Right. What we really want to do is pick, you know, three or four or five strategic partners and really grow those those relationships. So those those are the three buckets. Yeah, they they they're very helpful uh, because again, you know what it, what a church leadership team, what a pastor, what, what they're all wrestling with is, um, what are we to be? What are we to do? And how do we substantiate that choice of of where to focus? So, um, and and the tendency without a framework like this, why this is helpful is. It's very easy to go and, and become and look more like corporate America, right? We're building a strategic business plan uh, or a multi-year long range, uh, you know, plan. But it's a little different, you know, when it comes to the mission of the church. And that's why I think this is very helpful and really appreciate it. Well, um, what I'd like to do next is, you know, not leave our conversation without talking about this, the marks of genuine flourishing and the corresponding endowments. And this is sort of, in, in my mind, it's sort of the heart of the book, the framework. And you've, you've touched on the just and the well-ordered in a couple of instances. But could you talk about some of the other ones and um, give, give us a sense of what those are? And uh, that'd yeah. be helpful. Yeah. So, um, of course, the whole point of the book is sort of how do we seek the flourishing of our community? Uh, and I was very helped by a framework called the Human Ecology Framework uh, from a group called Thriving Cities Group. And essentially what Thriving Cities Group argues is that, okay, if you want to have a thriving community, you want to have a flourishing uh, community, well, it needs to be strong and healthy in six different arenas of, of the corporate life, uh, six different realms of, of our social life together. And they call those realms um, the true, which sort of maps onto the institutions of education and human learning. The good, uh, which is all about social ethics and social mores. The beautiful, which is the realm of arts and aesthetics and design. The just and well-ordered, which is the realm of, of civic life and, and political life. Uh, the sustainable, which is the realm of human and natural health, and the prosperous, which is the realm of economic life. Um, and so what I realized was that as pastors uh, asked that question, well, we, we wanna see, we wanna be Jeremiah 29.7, we don't quite know how to do it. It struck me that, well, one way of thinking about sort of how to do it is to have in your mind this framework to recognize these different realms, which the framework calls community endowments, 
And then to think about, well, given what God has placed in our hands in our particular congregation, our physical assets, and most importantly, the particular people that he has brought to us and their particular vocational power and expertise and knowledge and passion, um, which of these realms might be the, the ones that we could most strategically uh, contribute to, uh, given who we are, where we are, and what we have, what we have to offer. Um, and what was really rewarding, uh, William, in, in researching the book was seeing all the ways that all throughout her history, the Christian church has in fact made really important contributions to strengthening each of those different uh, six realms or six community endowments. Uh, and so I tell some of those historical stories because I want contemporary pastors um, to be able to say to their people, um, hey, uh, what I'm suggesting here, this isn't some sort of newfangled idea, right. some, some new weird modern fad. Um, actually, there's this rich legacy mm. of how the church um, has been living into this idea of, of bringing flourishing in all of these different dimensions of community life. And we have the opportunity to live into that legacy um, and, and to make the contributions that God would, would have us make. Yeah, very, very helpful. Um, I have been part of those types of exercises before, including some just this year. So uh, this has been helpful in just thinking through those important questions, which are renewable questions and continuing questions. Well, Amy, we're close to the end of, of the time that we wanted to have, but I didn't want to end without asking, are there any other things that you wanted to sort of as parting words, either uh, highlight again or just share uh, from the book and from your mm. thinking, what you're trying to really get out there in terms of a message? Mm. Mm. Uh Yeah, I think um, uh, I was laughing with a pastor friend of mine the other day, and I said, I said, I, I do trust the Lord's timing about, you know, sort of when this book came to birth. Mm. Um, I said, but in, in my own human mind, uh, I feel like it's not the greatest time to write this particular book, um, because it's a book that kind of sets out some ambitious vision for church leaders. And frankly, I think church leaders are exhausted right now. <laughs> I think church <laughs> leaders are overwhelmed. So there's part of me that wants to, to sort of say, okay, here I am, I'm the, I'm the author of this book. First thing I wanna to say to you as a pastor is like, take a break, <laughs> like, mm. have a sabbatical, Amen. <laughs> vacation. Uh, get get recharged. Um, don't feel burdened by my by my book as I throw it out at you and, and say, oh, now on top of everything else that you've had to deal with during the pandemic, you know, go out there and change your city. Um, so uh, so I do I do want to sort of say to folks, hey, um, it's okay if right now it's not the best time for you to be reading and implementing uh, this book. At the same time, I also think that some of the very uh, issues that have brought stress and strain and, and lament 
uh, to a lot of pastors um, that, that part of the part of the antidote to some of those things actually is living in to this calling mm. uh, of encouraging people to be agents of flourishing. Um, because again, the strange way of Jesus is that as we seek the good of others, we will find life. And, and that's even the promise of Jeremiah 29, 7, right? Seek the peace and prosperity of the city into which I have sent you, mm. for yeah. in its shalom, you will find yours. Yeah, yeah. Well, with that, we will conclude, uh, again, a deep and a hearty appreciation uh, for your time and uh, for even putting the three years and more, right? It's not just the three years, but the lifetime that sort of seeded much of that to, to, to work this out for the benefit of uh, many of our leaders here that are, uh, I think, going to enjoy uh, what this has to show. So thank you very much. And uh, all the best with uh, some of the other projects that you have going on. Thank you. Thank you, William. Thank you so much. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.